0: Music nerds and welcome to season 6 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Henhouse Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the 1st and 3rd Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes. So I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So anytime you hear this cute little slide guitar sound, you'll know there's a track to go along with it on the playlist. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show following us on Instagram, YouTube Facebook and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff of course at makersandshakerspodcast.com Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Hey there, folks and music nerds. Welcome back to season six of the show. This is episode number 134. We've got a really cool guest here this week, something a little different but very exciting. Nonetheless, a film and television composer who I've known for a long time and done a fair chunk of work with over the years, Patrick Carrad. So things are winding down for the year around here. It's been a pretty busy fall and I'm quite thankful for that and all the people that I've had a chance to work with and make music with over the last year as things sort of tried to come back to normal. In retrospect, I gotta say this has also been one of the toughest years to make things work as a musician. On some levels, things are firing on all cylinders, but honestly, there's also another side to things that you don't hear about as much. Traveling's become way more expensive, as we all know, and complicated, which we all know and that's impacted gigs and also impacted people who are thinking about traveling to make records. So it's had an impact on my studio life for sure as a recording person and as a side person in the studio. As a solo artist trying to gig and tour, things have become extremely difficult, like crazy. I'm not really gonna get into it all here, but just to say if you're struggling out there as a musician, it's definitely not an isolated thing. And I'm looking forward to getting into some new things in 2023 and see what that next year brings to us. But anyway, at the same time, it's lovely to be here in Nashville and making music with people. So yay for that. So my guest this week is someone I've known for a long time. And he's done some really incredible work in the film and television world. And some of his credits include shows like The Dead Zone, The Collector, The Imperfects, The Order, Outer Limits. Not to mention a ton of stuff for the Hallmark Channel, which is really cool. I got to know Pat. I call him Pat. You should maybe call him Patrick if you're talking to him in a professional way. I don't know. I call him Pat. He's my buddy. I got to know him about 22 or 3 years ago, I guess, which seems crazy to me. But that's when it was. And at the time, he was working on this animated show for Comedy Central called Ed, Ed and Eddie. And he was doing that with our mutual great friend, Sean Pierce. And that show was insane, both the show itself, which was insane, but the music was really spectacular and I've never heard or seen anything like it since. And the way that it happened was Pat would write almost wall to wall music for the score of the show every week and arrange it for a really cool band that was mostly horn players with a rhythm section. It was kind of like trashy small slash big band kind of stuff. And then he'd bring in the entire band, and they'd set up and read the score down, which was handwritten by Pat, every week. So I think it was every Monday, might have been every Tuesday. They'd go in, everybody, go into the studio in Vancouver, and he'd have all this music handwritten, which is so nuts. Like, there's so much music to write. And he was usually writing more as they, as they had started. He was still writing cues. But uh, anyway, within a couple of hours, they'd knock out these incredible arrangements that were really fun and whimsical and netty. and it was so cool to see i i just saw it because i was friends with those guys and i sat in a couple times and watched the whole thing go down and it was incredible the show ed ed and eddie was animated by a guy named danny antonucci who is well known for his role in these second twisted animation film festivals that used to happen all the time around vancouver and elsewhere um, he had a character called Lupo the Butcher, and then a series on MTV called The Grunts, and then that led to Ed Ed and Eddie. Anyway, at, at one point, one of the one of the kids, the, one of the Eds on the show, started to play steel guitar for no apparent reason, and I got asked to play that instrument for the show, which I did, and that little clip got to be known as 88 Fingers Edward, and has become something of a weird cult classic and if you'd like to hear about that with another interview that i did with pat about a year ago you can find it on my youtube channel and if you just search for 88 fingers edward on youtube you'll find it it's pretty funny anyway pat's an amazing musician and i thought it would be cool to hear a bit about how that side of things works composing for film and tv especially in the netflix age just how it all goes down it's not something i know that much about and i haven't done too much composing specifically for TV like this. I've done a little bit, but not too much. So I thought it'd be cool to hear from somebody who does it all the time. You can find info on Patrick Caird and all his projects at PatrickCaird.com That's Patrick with a C at the end, no K. Caird, C-A-I-R-D.com. Before we get going here, I'd just like to shout out to some folks who made donations or signed up to the Patreon over the last couple of weeks. It's been a few people. Thanks, everybody. John Barnum, Mark Giaciponi, this one I'm going to blow it, Morton Ves-Villert, Vill- Morton Ves-Villert. I'm guessing he's Dutch and I'm guessing I blew it, but that's how I'm going to say it. Dan Berman, Sean Feder, and Ann Weaver. Thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate it. And don't forget, we are giving away a union tube and transistor C-Verb reverb pedal at the end of this season to a random Patreon subscriber. So if you become one, you will be entered automatically. And we also have some new merch for the show, coffee mugs and hoodies and a couple new t-shirts. You can get them over at the podcast website merch page. So that's makersandshakerspodcast.com. There's a merch page. Check them out. And finally, just wanted to let you know that The Hen House Hang this year is going to be September 25th to 28th, and it'll be an amazing four days of learning about how the studio works and how songs are recorded. You can get the scoop on that at stevedawson.ca, The Hen House Hang. Come on down. There's currently, I think, four or five spots left only. So get in there. All right, let's get down to it. Enjoy my conversation with Patrick Caird. So uh, we're going to talk about the fascinating me. Let's do it. Let's just launch in. So, um... You know, a a big part of what I what I would love to talk to you about is how you've kind of transitioned your career. I mean, this is going back a long time, but basically from being like a live guy into being a a film guy, essentially. And I know you still play, although nothing like you used to. You were you were really road dogging it for for (laughs) for years there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but before we do that, maybe maybe you could tell me some of your latest projects because we haven't really caught up in that regard. We've talked about other stuff, but um, as far as like what you've been doing um, musically in the last three, four, five years, I'm not totally sure. So maybe you could just kind of catch me up on some of the latest projects that you're doing.
1: Sure. I just finished a uh, a Netflix series called The Imperfects, ten episodes. Uh, it's a supernatural thing for the last. Three or four years, I've sort of been into this uh, groove with a friend of mine who's doing these uh, supernatural ghost story, crazy shows. Uh, Before this, it was a show called The Order, which ran for two seasons on Netflix and was really quite popular. And before that, it was a show called Ghost Wars, which was also a blast. And uh, so I kind of got into this thing with this buddy of mine who's a producer and he did all those shows, the same guy. Yeah. Okay. He was on, he was on all three of those shows. Uh, and he created, did he create the order? I think he created the order and he may have, uh, and he co-created uh, the Imperfects and they're all fun. I mean, they're all like uh, certainly the, the order and the Imperfects are like beautiful young people with uh, <laughs> you know, supernatural problems. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Every
0: now and then I turn it's into a werewolf. Right. Yeah. you know so. <laughs>
1: And uh, it's fun to work with him, and, uh, and Netflix is is good, you know, because you, you just kind of like put your head down and make and make shows, and it's
0: it's great. Tell me a little bit about that process, like the whole. You've you've kind of seen the birth of Netflix. You've been through like the tail end of life pre streaming, and then now there's all this streaming where like it just seems like content is being produced yeah. like just left, right, and center, and I'd imagine that things have changed a lot in that way, but, but how's the actual day-to-day working of being a composer on a strictly Netflix show work for you? Oh, it's great. It's
1: great. I mean, uh, certainly in the early days of Netflix was kind of like they, they saw, the, I think they saw themselves as a, uh, an it company, you know, like, a uh, they, you know, they delivered product and they figured out how to sell it and that that was their sort of niche. And, uh, You know, and they left the creative, not entirely, but they said, you guys make the stuff and we, and we get it on uh, out to the viewers, you know, we're the conduit to do that. We sell it. And, uh, and, you know, so there was a lot of focus on sort of letting the creatives be creative and, and doing their thing. And they, and Netflix had a lot of belief in the people that they were working in. And that's, I think how they managed to build up their, you know, market share is, as you say, it's content. You know, yeah. they just keep pushing it in. And, and over the last couple of years, I think certainly during the COVID things kind of shifted because everything got shut down and then they started trying to rebuild the, the system and getting more involved in creative, not, not interferingly, but just having ideas. For example, this, this show that we're on now was kind of like we were on the order and the, and the executives at Netflix said to my friend, Dennis Heaton said, well, uh, do you want to do another show? And he goes, okay. and, <laughs> And I love it. I go. Ah, how about yeah. uh, I don't know? How about a mad scientist? And, and Dennis <laughs> goes, great. You know, <laughs> so off they go. You know, wow, so that, it's pretty cool and and uh, an interesting thing. I mean, as you know, uh, streaming has had some pretty negative effects on our income
0: as musicians and royalties. Can you can you explain how that's affected things? Like I understand it from a musician side, not with Netflix, obviously, but with streaming services. But for you as a composer, can you tell me how that has affected things for you? Like as far as you know, how it works with with back end stuff versus getting paid upfront, and and if it's simpler or more complicated. Like I, I don't really know what the scoop is with all that stuff now.
1: Uh, well, I, certainly when when streaming first hit, I noticed a pretty substantial drop in my, uh, in my royalties for, you know, performance rights okay. royalties by a factor of 10. Okay. You know, yeah, you know, so what used to be a pretty nice passive income pretty much just disappeared completely.
0: So and why, why is that? Cause it's not like the shows aren't getting played, so it's just collected and distributed in a different way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of different, philosophies and theories about it. And it gets kind of contentious. When you look at it, like when you go out on a network or on a radio station, for example, they have X number of listeners that they're pretty confident that they have, and they have a sales model. They're selling time to advertisers based on their audience, which would be, I don't know, half a million people in a big city or a million people in a bigger city kind of thing. And they know that those people are listening to the radio and that's, they've got an audience of a million people so they go our time is worth x per 15 seconds you know
0: okay
1: but but with streaming and 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 you may not always have all of those million people listening to your ad right. but there's reasonable there's a reasonable presumption that a, a lot of them will be and if you've got a small radio station that gets like 150,000 listeners you know the the advertising budget would would be commiserate with that it, it, yeah. it would you know you'd spend less per 15 second block with streaming, it's individual streams. So you might, oh. they know how many people have watched their show. They even know when they stopped watching it. And if they watched from one episode to the next with, with the streamers, it's all about, from what I'm understanding, it's all about getting people to stay engaged with, right. with the platform. Yep, I understand that. You know, you may have a show that's, that a million people are watching over time, but it's not like the assumption that a million people will have an opportunity to watch it the way old school broadcast royalties worked. Right. So I understand the math around that. Yeah. But there is this sort of problem that it's all happening behind the curtain. All the information is is not, is proprietary, right?
0: What kind of information do you get? Like as a composer, do you know what kind of numbers of people are watching the shows or anything, or you're just like out of the loop?
1: No, it's just a line item on my SoCan statement, wow. and you know, a, a couple of zeros got knocked off of it. <laughs> that <laughs> sucks. <laughs> yeah, really. You know, so that. But but to to be also to be fair, I mean, the order was a pretty big show. Yeah, and I did start to see over the course of the run of the show, we did two seasons. The royalties started to tick up. Okay, and and that was great. But ironically, uh, even though it was getting more you know, penetration into the market. It wasn't performing the way the algorithms required it to perform, to satisfy the Netflix mandate. So they axed it. So they, they canned it and it, and it was a very popular show, huh. but it's not about being popular. It's about the behavior of the viewers. Weird. This is my, you know, I, you know, this is the only way I can figure it out. And I've had this conversation a few times with different producers who are still also scratching their heads going, we have no idea you know, but I do notice that used to be that, you know, you'd really have to fuck up your first season to not get a second season because the, you know, you do your front load, you know, it's it's expensive to get a show up once it's up, you can run it out. Yeah. But I've been noticing just sort of uh, anecdotally uh, looking at the little bit of media news that I look at
0: Netflix is canning shows in the first season now. So that's, that's a slightly different. behavior, And like not even seeing them through the first season or just like say, oh, no. saying at the end of the season, this is it.
1: You'll do the whole show and okay. then, and then it'll hit. And usually in the first three or four weeks, they'll be, you know, they'll say, okay, let's keep it going, you know? Right. Cause you know, it takes months to get 10 shows written and yeah,
0: shot and then fucking at least an hour or two to get them uh, composed. <laughs> 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 so, you've noticed a big drop in the back end royalties. What about in the upfront stuff? Like, does Netflix, like when you work on a Netflix show, are you getting paid a, an upfront amount that's similar to what you would have been paid like back 15 years ago for doing a TV show? Or is it way less? Or what's, what's that it's, look
1: like? It, it's similar. It's okay. similar ish. Yeah. You know, but I mean, there's been such downward pressure on on that, you know, because everyone now is a composer. Right. And, uh, and I don't blame them. It's a, it's a great way to, to spend your time, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, there's a lot of downward pressure on fees and, uh, also the expectations are different. And so that's been going on for, for a long time. Right. You hoped that the show would be a hit and you would, and you would wind up with some residual income or technically it's not residuals, it's royalties, which are different, but, uh, Anyhow, so that, that, yeah, it's, it's, things are changing so quickly. Yeah. I don't really do a lot of the socials, you know, I don't, I'm not engaging that way. I've heard that, that some people, I don't know how true this is, but I've heard that some people use their followers as, as, as a a bargaining chip, you know, like, right. Oh, I've I've got, I've got 400,000 followers, you know, I'm going to bring eyes to your show. You need to, you need to compensate me accordingly. Like, I'm quite sure that's the way it goes with, you know, the TikTok people and the YouTube people. In fact, that
0: sounds like a really frustrating game for a composer to be in, involved in. <laughs> yes.
1: And then you see guys that, that uh, put time into it, you know, the, and they do beautiful, like bear McCreary fantastic, you know, and Trevor Morris does a lot of social stuff, social media stuff. There's a lot of guys that, that have created, uh, really interesting uh, well those guys are
0: also doing massive shows and they may well have a team that just oh, does they, that for them right it, they've got lots of folks yeah yeah
1: and i and you know i personally don't don't care for that style of working uh, but but i don't think there's anything anything wrong with it i mean ultimately, you know i'm not judging some guy cuz he's got two or three people like doing the night shift for him and, and taking care of business. And right. ultimately he's the decider. He's the guy that's making the, those final decisions. If, if this is worthy of, you know, if it's representational of what, what he's doing. Yeah. And it's an odd thing, you know, man, I've, I've often wondered about this. I've lost a gig, couple of gigs and you, you never know if you've lost a gig because you were the guy and then somebody came in, but you know, you, you have a feeling about stuff you're pitching on and there's been a couple of times where I thought that I was were, we're close to closing, and then at the last minute, it disappears, goes to someone else, and uh, and in, uh, on on two specific occasions, that someone else was a guy that was doing ten series already. Oh my god! And I'm thinking, you know, and, and uh, the last time, the producer, one of my producer friends on the inside. Called me to say that I wasn't going to do the job. And I said, Oh, well, that's too bad. Uh, that's really disappointing. Do you mind if I ask who got it? And he told me. Yeah. And he goes, You know, so and so's doing the job, but I wish it was you. And I said, Well, you'll wish it was him too, because he's doing 10 shows.
0: Right, right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so so just so people understand, like this is a thing that has been going on for a long time where where the a composer will get a job, but kind of like farm out a lot of the work to other people and then sort of bring it under his own umbrella, right? That's sort of what you're referring to.
1: Yeah. I think that's the worst uh, description of it. I, th- mm-hmm. I think most of these guys are doing the, you know, they'll do the meeting, they'll, they'll get the job, they'll get the concept. They'll, you know, they'll work through that whole thing, which is a huge amount of work. Yeah, they'll, they'll get the sound, they'll get the themes, they'll do all that sort of thing. Then once that template's up in place, you can pretty confidently, you know, say we're using this theme here and that thing there, and here's the tempo and I want to stop, the you know, go through the spots. A lot of that's all in the spotting and then, and then have their people sort of finish it. And, and then, you know, it's almost like the Andy Warhol system, you know, right? Yeah. not, not quite that, you know, a factory ish, but, you know, so you, you, you set the tone of the show and the guy that I'm thinking of, he does, he does a bunch of different things, obviously, and different styles for each one, you know? So, he's got great scope and he's got, he's obviously very talented. And, you know, he's just churning the stuff out with the help of, of people that he's teaching how to make it right. So there's pluses and minuses to both of it. And I'm certainly not going to talk disparagingly about that system. It's just not a system that attracts me at all. You, know? you don't have,
0: you don't have 30 mini Pat Carrots working behind well, the sofa over there.
1: <laughs> I don't, but I mean, when, when I was busy working on three shows, more than three shows, uh, at a time, there would be cues for it didn't require me to to do that, you know. Like there'd be something they had tempted with some pop tune or other, and and you know, I was busy doing the the score for the whatever, and I would hire guys that I knew that that were excellent, that had the skills, and I'd say, this is the tune that they want it to sound like. Here's our palette, you know, uh, let her rip, you know. Yeah. But if, if it was I always felt kind of bad about uh, taking responsibility for someone else's cue. On the times that that happened, you're sitting in the mix and the producer looks over at you with tears in their eyes and saying, this is m- the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And you go, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, my buddy wrote it, actually. Uh, you know. <laughs> it <like, laughs>
0: so, so. never felt good to me, so I just didn't like doing it. Yeah, I get it. Uh, You mentioned the, the pitching process. Can you walk me through that? So like, obviously, like for you to get a gig, there's one way where it happens where there's a producer that you've worked with and they know you and they know what kind of work you do. And that probably just happens kind of organically. But when there's a show that you hear about that I assume like through a manager or something like that, what does that actually mean when you pitch for a show? Like, do you do do you get um, visual cues and write sample like write sample cues and all that? Sure, they do. They do that. Um, like these, I'm talking about these days with the, in the Netflix streaming world. How does that work when you, when you're pitching for something where you don't have an in?
1: Well, you know, it's very it's very seldom that that oh comes, really comes to fruition. Oh, okay. You know, over the years, I've definitely you know pitched my my reel on the show. Oh, there's a show, blah, blah, blah. It's sort of similar to another show you've done. Occasionally someone that I don't know has said, can we hear some stuff from Pat cared, you know? Uh, but normally there's some kind of organic connection to the project.
0: And then <clears throat>
1: things, uh, you know, inside of that, there's a, there's a, there's a hierarchy of power, you know? And yeah. if your guy is powerful enough, you know, he can bring you in. And if, if he's already got, if he's already pulled a couple of, you know, uh, wins, he's going to have to give some away. And sometimes you're the guy that gets given away, you know? And so, right, right. so there's all these things going on, but ultimately I think everyone's just trying to make the best show possible, you know, and there's lots of guys that are capable of doing what I do. And it's just the relationship that, uh, people want. The comfort, well, it's the, it's the, the same
0: comfort. with with music for sure. It's the exact yeah. same thing where, or nine times out of 10, it's all through somebody, you know, or somebody you've worked with in a different capacity for sure. Yeah. So does that, is that something where it's helpful to be in Los Angeles for that reason, or not so much anymore? Like you've sort of forged those connections and relationships and you don't feel like you need to be there anymore, or uh, is that an active part of it where you kind of feel like you need to make an appearance down there and, and see some peeps?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I lived there for 15 years and loved every
0: breath of it. and uh, I loved your place. You had the best place. Yeah, It was great. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, but that, that, changed too near the end. I mean uh, a, that whole neighborhood Laurel Canyon and the Hills there became a uh, very desirable before it was, no one wanted to live up there. Cause it was, you know, up it's in hard the to get to and scary and weird. And, yeah. and, uh, and now everyone wants to live there. And, Without, I mean, I'm telling you, man, for seven years, there was construction across the street from us. And every morning at six, the cars would pull up and the doors would slam and, you know, the workers would be talking outside your window, your bedroom window, and you're just kind of like, brother, you got to like, can you keep it down? And they were very (laughs) apologetic, but they were at work, you know, their day had started. And uh, anyway, that neighborhood really changed back to what you were asking about. Being in Los Angeles, I... it's not going to hurt your career. That's for sure. And you get to meet people and, and you get to meet the best people, like not the best people they're the best people, but you get to meet the top engineers and the, uh, and the top musicians and the top orchestrators. And the like these guys that I love that city. I remember the first time I went there and I was sitting in a restaurant. Don't even remember where somewhere in Hollywood. And every conversation around me was the business was TV or movies. And I went, I want to live here. Yeah. This, is, this is actually what I care about. I don't right. care about whatever the hell you're talking about in, you know, in Vancouver or whatever. I mean, not, I don't want to be too disparaging about it, but I just love the fact that everyone is in the business. You know? Right.
0: Yeah. That's <laughs> how I feel here I, in Nashville too.
1: Oh, it's another great place. You know, when I was, when I was there, you know, a couple of years ago, I just loved it. Everyone was a player and music was important to like normal people walking down the street. Anyhow, uh, there's a lot of bonuses to being in Los Angeles. And part of it is the actual community of composers and musicians. Right. That you I mean, there's one in Toronto. There's no question there's a there's a community there. And there's one in Vancouver as well. But it's just massive. And not only that, but they're the best guys. I mean, when I first got to L.A., I joined the Society of Composers and Lyricists in another organization called ASMAC, the American Society of Music Arrangers and Composers. These are weekly or monthly meetings, depending on what's going on with the guys that make TV and movies like, uh, you know, they've worked their whole life and now they're old and and they're retired. Not all of them. And, you know, I met Johnny fucking Mandel at these things. I mean, Amazing. Christ, <laughs> you know, and I, I saw Claire Fisher play and I, you know, and I talked to Bill Holman and everyone was so friendly and so supportive. And it's like, I remember I went to an SCL meeting and I was doing a, what's SCL society and composers and lyricists. Okay. And, uh, and I was, I was writing the score for a dance theater production in Toronto with a live band, a nine piece band on stage, sort of basically the, uh, uh, Histoire de Soldat Stravinsky eight piece with an added flute. And, uh, and it was based on Peter and the Wolf and blah, 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 blah. It was a, I don't know, an hour, 70 minute long piece. And it was pretty much continuous music. And I'm writing this piece and I'm thinking, cause you know, I mean, I showed you the charts last time. I usually write everything by hand. I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to write this by hand. I mean, it's going to take forever and <laughs> I'm going to go through more white out than there's <laughs> on the planet, you know? So, uh, so I'm at one of these SCL meetings and I meet this guy named Charles Fernandez, just a sweetheart. And I go, Oh man, do you know anything about Sibelius? And he goes, yeah, I kind of know everything about Sibelius. And I go, well, can I pay you for some lessons or he says? No, you can't, but I'll get together with you at lunch and I'll show you what's going on. So we got together at a restaurant, in the Beverly center and with our laptops, you know, sitting there and, uh, and he showed me how to, you know, get better. At, I knew it a little bit, but he showed me how he worked it. And it was a totally different method from the way I was doing it way more efficient. Cause he'd been doing it forever. Yeah. And then he said, look, call me anytime. If you have a problem. And i I'd, I'd call him at 11 at night and he go, yeah, yeah, I just do that. It's uh, amazing. Command L. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but anyway, there's that infrastructure there. And uh, again, it's the kind of place where you can go and sit down and have a very in-depth conversation about you know about an arrangement on a tune and the string parts you know also asmac an amazing uh they do they do it all now online and it's worth looking into if you're curious at all about that stuff they would have these uh workshops where you you know on saturdays once a month or every six weeks or so you'd go out to uh college in the valley and sit there and they would you know bob minzer did one uh uh, they were just they were really incredible it's a great community uh, if if you like, amazing. if you like music and movies you kind of have to be there you don't have to but it's a it's a great place to go and and do it as far as does it help your career i mean i did do some local work when i was in the states but i most of my main uh, jobs were still from my canadian clients and friends like that interesting across the line. I mean, I also had, I did quite a few Hallmark movies too, which I loved. Yeah, and yeah. and the Hallmark office was like three miles from my house. So oh, really? I could just pop by and talk to the music uh, supervisor, the head of music there and, yeah. and do meetings there. I, and I really enjoyed it. I love I love cool. the, the Hallmark stuff. It's fantastic.
0: Can you take a series like say whether it's the Imperfects or, or another one that you've enjoyed doing lately and just like, Kind of walk me through how you approach doing an episode and what it actually is like as far as what you get visually. Do you get the completed episode? What do you get from the director as far as like how hands-on are they? Like, I guess pick one, pick pick a show and tell me how hands-on they are and what your approach is to composing and then how it actually goes down these days.
1: Yeah, okay. So typically uh, there's, that, there's that whole uh brainstorming session that happens at the beginning of the show where you're talking about ideas and not, i'll I'll do mockups and demos of stuff, not even necessarily to picture. and uh, and in fact, there was there was one show when I was sort of pitching on a show where I hired a string quartet to come in and play some music for me because I couldn't get the samples to do what I wanted them to do. And yeah. they were also I'd heard them at the at the Disney hall. And I say, hey, I'm doing a thing. Would you mind doing a demo? And they said, oh, we'd love to. We'll be right over. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. And it's it's just a killer string quartet. And uh, (laughs) so it it definitely made me sound better. And I got the gig. But uh, so you do all of that sort of like figuring out what it is ahead of time. And then once you're in production, there'll be, it's called a temp score. You've probably heard of it. Of where they take music from other stuff and sometimes your own music and put it in, sort of slug it in. Like we want music here. We want it here, blah, blah, blah. And the picture editor is responsible a lot for how that goes, but also the showrunner, who's sort of the, the big boss. The runner
0: uh, is the guy that sort of oversees the entire thing as a whole. Correct. Yeah, that's right. He's not directing individual episodes or he is sometimes.
1: Sometimes he does uh, okay. or she does. And sometimes they're the head writer. Uh, on a show oh, okay. or the creator. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they're basically, they're running the show, hence the title showrunner. Okay. And so everything goes through them and they also are the, every, all the shit that comes down hits them. You know, okay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So I'm glad I have one in front of me. You know? Right. And very often uh, I've been in situations where there's been notes that have come down and they've elected not to share that note with me because number one creatively they didn't agree with it and number two maybe it wasn't something that would benefit you know because you kind of have to have a, a pretty strong thick skin <clears throat> but people can say some pretty mean stuff uh, really unknowingly you know like this is the worst thing i've ever heard <laughs> oh, what is this guy <laughs> thinking
0: you know? <laughs> like that'll be that'll be actually in the show notes well potentially. You,
1: get, you get protected from that usually by a good right. writer or a, a producer that sort of insulates you from it because he understands that we're all you know we're creatives but if it's not going to be constructive if, if it's a if it's a criticism that isn't going to push the ball forward you know okay. yeah. then there's no point in bringing it up. If it's chronic, if you keep continue to do the, you know, like there's this one cue and someone will say, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. Yeah, the rest <laughs> of it, they're going, I love this part. This, the more, you know, so you realize that it's all kind of on a sliding scale. You never want to hear, you never want to hear, this is the worst thing, but you also don't want to hear, you don't want to miss that someone's unhappy with what you're doing because you want to be able to make a change. In right, real time. right. Anyway, so back to the to the process. So you'll get generally, you'll get a what's called a fine cut. okay which means that it's not going to change but it always changes (laughs) then and so uh well no a lock a locked cut's not going to change a fine cut is like it's going to be something like this and you know it'll be 45 minutes long or whatever to whatever time they they need it to be sometimes it'll be long and you know that you'll be cutting stuff down sometimes it'll be short Mm -hmm whatever. And then it's got the temp score in there and then you'll spot it. The spotting session is where you pick the spots where the music
0: goes, but more importantly, like the actual, like from 46 seconds to a minute, 46, you're going to have a thing, a cue. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you know, they'll generally, they'll have a temp in there. Yeah. Something, you know, and the temp is sometimes, you know, they'll, sometimes you'll get to pay no attention to the temp. It's just a placeholder Right. or other times they'll go, I like the pace of this. I like the, inst- I like the sparseness. I like the busyness. I like the bigness. I like the smallness, you know, and you get, th- so you start in this kind of language. Yep. Usually my big question in these sessions is if there's a cue going on and I'll turn to the showrunner and I'll say, what, a, what, what do we want to feel here? What am, what am I, what am I adding? You know, you've already, we've got it written. We've got it shot. We can see what it is. We can hear what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Music is kind of like your last chance for subtext. Yeah. It's also, you know, you can reinforce stuff. You can sense a false, you know, you can send them off in the wrong direction. You can surprise them. You can make them sadder. You can make them happier. You know, this is yep. the things that music can do. And uh, and very often, if it's already on the screen, I-, I lobby to get out of the way and let it play, you know? Mm-hmm not because it's less work for me, but because it always, when I'm watching something and I'm getting the feels and then I hear the music cue come in, I go, don't kill me, please. You know, know, unless it's Maurice Charest, I I don't want to fucking hear music right now. Right. Right. I've got the music already going, you know? Yeah. Uh, But you know, there's certain expectations and also a a, a show will set a tone and so you want to be consistent with the tone of the show. So, yeah, so you go through, you spot it. And then uh, and then I'm, I'm left to my own devices, really. I mean, I've come up in all the shows, you come up with general themes and certainly a, a template, a palette of sounds. This do, last do, show, you,
0: the- do you run like uh, like a, a theme, a general theme that you're going to use, whether it's the main theme or whether it's a theme that'll be recurring through the show, do you run those all by the runner as you go. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: And you pointed out, you know, that uh, some of the, some, some shows are very sort of leitmotif. You know, you've got a, a theme for him and a theme for her and a theme for this and a okay. theme for that. And you play it like that was the order was very much that way. Okay. There was a lot of themes for that. Uh, Ghost Wars was less. So under the Hallmark stuff, I, what I love to do is, is write a melody for our, our, our heroine basically. And then occasionally a counter melody or, or bridge, you know, for, for our man, yeah. the love interest. And then to uh, mix, you know, like a mix and match. And, and I, d- I've done, I don't know, a dozen Christmas movies. And I love the Christmas stuff because it's like, you take those two themes and add Christmas, you know, <laughs> you know <like laughs> sprinkle snowflakes on top <laughs> and it writes get, itself.
0: <laughs> get some good jingle bell tracks in there and you're yeah, off to the races. <laughs> and I, um, you know, I really like it. So when you're composing the themes, are you, uh, what? like, what, what's your tool? What are, you, what are you composing on? Piano, keyboard, usually. Always, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then you okay. assign sounds to it. But, I mean, it's the melody and the harmonies. You know, I've always had this kind of philosophy that uh, the melody tells tells the story and the harmony tells the feeling you know and so Ah. you know you've got this melody line going and okay we're going through time and this is what it's happening but you know you harmonize it differently and it becomes a different journey you know and Right. right and then there's also texture and timbre and orchestration and all those other parts that add to it but just in very basic terms those are the sort of things which you know I have a tendency to be attracted to complex harmonies, uh, probably because of my jazz background. And I've learned over time that that you can go too far in that direction. And sometimes less is way, way, way more. And if you can say it with three notes, say it with three notes, you know. Mm -hmm. That's a good lesson. Making the best. Oh, man, you're telling me? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because you mentioned playing. I mean, I haven't played for 20 years, but I did go out and play it. Uh, a gig with the blues band that I toured with for 15 years in September. It's literally the first gig I've done since 2000 and 2000.
0: How's the embouchure?
1: Well, that's, that's funny. You should say, okay, I'll give you this story. It's really kind of sweet. So I'm, you know, I'm here on salt spring and uh, there was a bunch of people here in the house and everything. And then, and then they all went back to their homes and I'm alone on salt spring and, you know, I've got my piano downstairs and, I'm not, I don't have any work at the moment. And so I thought, I'll take out the horn and see what that feels like. It it had literally been two or three years since I touched it. Yeah. So I take it out and I start to. (laughs) And I go, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This might not go as well as I thought. (laughs) And that week, like a couple days later, I get a phone call out of the blue from the leader of the band that I played with 20 years ago saying powder blues. Yeah. Yeah. Tom goes, Pat, powder's got a gig. You're on the band. (laughs) And I go, what? (laughs) And he goes, powder's got a gig. You're on the band. And I go, Tom, I haven't played for 20 years. He goes, I don't fucking care. You don't have to play. Just show up, bring your horn, play two notes. it will be better than anybody. And I go, well, Tom, I'm not going to do that. When is it? (laughs) He goes, and this was in, uh, this would have been the end of July. And he goes, okay. September 5th in Calgary. And I go, oh, that's about six weeks away. Well, no, no, I'm not going to, hmm. <laughs> and I think for a while, he goes, Clark's on the band, Colange's on the band, blah, 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 all the guys I used to play with. <laughs> and he goes, come on, you got to do it. And uh, I go, oh. Okay, I'll say I'm gonna do it, but I reserve the right to pull out at the last minute. Because yeah, I just like sex life. And uh <laughs> so, so uh he goes, uh so I take this fucking gig and then I realize that if I'm gonna stand on stage for 90 minutes, I'm gonna have to build some face back here, you know. Like that's hard to play the saxophone for 90 I'll minutes. I'll say. And uh, so, well, you know, it's hard to play any instrument, like playing an instrument you're an athlete and you know, I haven't walked around the block. I've sit in this chair. You know, <laughs> and So I start practicing the saxophone every day for six weeks. Yeah. And by the time the gig came along, I, I made it through the 90 minute set and it was really fun. And I had I a bet. great time. And one of, one of the things that I promised myself was that I wasn't going to show off and I wasn't going to try to do fancy stuff, which I'd had a tendency to do when I was a player. And, uh, I was just going to play what I heard. And if I didn't hear anything, I wasn't going to play. And when we hit the bandstand, I was nervous and feeling weird and And you know, you're disoriented. And it also it was an outdoor gig in the middle of a football field on the back of a flatbed stage.
0: You know, oh my God.
1: Worst possible condition yeah. in the world, you know? And I felt a little iffy for the first tune or two. And then, then I kind of went, you know what, just you're with your buddies and it's a beautiful night, and you—you know—they've got single malt scotch in the band room. Uh, enjoy yourself. <laughs>
0: yeah, and I did. And it was really, really fun. Oh, that sounds amazing.
1: The road, however, hasn't changed. <laughs>
0: no, it's the same set of shit after but, another.
1: Oh, I, just re- relentless crap, and you know they've <laughs> made flying in an airplane
0: the least sexy thing in the world. Oh, it's the worst. Ah. Oh. It's so uncomfortable and so stressful for me, especially because I'm usually trying to get shit on the plane. Me too, right? my horn, <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, I go, this thing's worth a lot of money. You're not putting it under there. Yeah.
1: Didn't you get an instrument smashed to hell one time?
0: I did. Yeah. It's over there. Yeah.
1: Well, and you know, you, you, saxophones, even though they're made out of metal, they bend really
0: easily. Okay. I, I, w- I, w- I do want to ask you about some of your road, your road dog days, but before we, before we get there just going back to the show for a minute so if you you've spotted it you've composed roughly i guess on all on keyboard it's all are you all using samples or are you bringing in musicians and going into studios these days as well oh
1: what i was gonna say i got derailed there a lot of my stuff is sort of midi orchestra and has been for ages with a little bit of synth and percussion and and then live players whenever possible, but the budgets have.
0: It, would you say pretty much across the board when you get a gig these days, it's just going to be you composing uh, with MIDI?
1: Yes, but t- to be clear on with these producers that I'm working with, with the Netflix, they always sort of have a little money set aside for live players. If I, if I need it, or if it comes okay. up, they're very encouraged, you know, they encourage that so they understand the value out of a a real player in the right situation you know but you can't get an orchestra i mean it's none of that that's not going to happen but one one beautiful instrument playing a beautiful melody
0: so is that something you do if possible would be to do like like an orchestral midi score and then bring in a real violin player to play a melody or something okay cool Done done it a lot
1: you know, yep. or, or even you know, I don't really play the guitar. I own a bunch of them. You know, I play at them, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I call myself a guitar owner. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know, if there's a guitar part, I'll hire someone to play it because, yeah. you know, without exception, uh, you get a great musician to play your music, and you're going to sound better. <laughs> you know? right. They're going to make you sound great. You know, and it's sort of that stroke of genius that, yeah, you make me sound wonderful.
0: This show is brought to you by the good folks at Isotope, who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation. Among other things, they make a very unique suite of software called RX, which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording whether it's removing electrical hum, unwanted noise, vocal plosives, or almost anything you can throw at it. I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins, you use the code SOULPOD10 at checkout. So head on over to Isotope.com/SoulPod and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple years now and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra-tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Thanks to our other sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor. They're known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing, both on stage and in the studio. I use their Bender fuzz pedal, the Moore pedal, and the Swindle overdrive pedal all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find them at uniontone.com. And thanks to Spectra 1964. For over 50 years, Spectra 1964 has established a reputation of creating some of the most innovative recording equipment on the market today. From the legendary V610, C610, and 611 comp units to the new 500-series lunchbox mic Pre's and EQs, Spectra 1964 continues the legacy of providing incredible recording products for the home or professional studio. Check them out at spectra1964.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville on September 19 to 22, 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots in Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the henhouse Hang. All right, then let's get back to the show. So you take your score that you've basically put in place, you've put it where they want it, and then what, you submit the entire thing as a whole to the runner for him to go through?
1: That's the process that I did on this last series. I would yeah. hold everything back. Uh, once we got into it. For the first few, you kind of want to make sure you're on track and if there's any course correction, you don't want to have written 30 minutes of music and then have to go page one everything, which seldom happens. But, uh, you know, once you're up and running and things have been sort of established and you're comfortable, I would write the entire show and then I would send videos of that to the showrunner who would then make notes to me. Hit this harder, change that here. I need this, this. This is sounding sad, I want it to be scary, or mm-hmm. you know, I want it to be more surprise here, or I need more energy in this. And so you go and you do that. Or, you know, and also to some of the comments are, this is fantastic, more of this, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I love this theme. Maybe we can come back to it later. You know, that sort of thing. You keep track mm-hmm. of all that stuff.
0: How long does it take you to get to that point, roughly? In terms of... Like actual work to, to compose the entire episode in its first draft? Well, um... I I mean, I know it would depend, but just say it was on the last one that you worked on. How long would you spend on a on an episode?
1: I hope to, you know, I aim to write three to five minutes, write, perform, produce, deliver three to five minutes of finished music a day. Okay. So if I've got uh, twenty minutes of it, that's going to be seven days of work. Well, six to seven. Yeah. You know, I always when I'm scheduling my time out, I I estimate low. In terms of output, because then if you get ahead of yourself, that's great. And also, my work—you know—my ideal work method is to get up very early, four thirty-five in the morning, yeah, and work till five at night. Five, shut her down, go to monsoon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, and then I'll do night shifts if I'm up against a deadline or something. And I—I I haven't had to do an all-nighter in years, but in the old days. You know that would be that would
0: happen. Um, Okay, so you get your notes from the runner or the director or whoever. Um, So the showrunner. You 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 make your revisions, Mm -hmm. and then is there still back and forth and back and forth, and it just keeps going until you fine tune it all?
1: It can. uh, Generally, you know, once you're into the show, everything's pretty much everyone's happy with what's going on, and even though the the score does uh, evolve and Mm -hmm. things change for example in in the order we started because they were young people and it was a college campus and there was this and that but there was also scary monsters and horror aspects um we felt that we wanted to have sort of a modern touch to it that that you know some samples and some drum loops and some synths added into this this palette but as the show progressed over the 20 episodes that we did it pushed more and more into an orchestral operatic kind of thing. It that's okay. what it felt it wanted. So it became more like opera orchestra with percussion. And the synth right. stuff kind of took a back seat.
0: <clears throat> okay. And the loops disappeared pretty much entirely. So so that really evolved. That it way. did
1: it did evolve. And it was the right call. I mean, and the show changed too. The look of the show remained the same, but I mean, just the way it got played, it got more melodramatic and more kind of, you know, lurid and
0: inky and beautiful. And then when, when the score is essentially signed off on, you just hand it over to the sound mixer who's going to mix in the dialogue and the music. That's out of your hands. You don't get involved in any of that like overall mixing process do you
1: well this uh, normally no well normally yeah it's 50 50 a lot of times they don't want to see a composer on the mixing stage because he's just going to say turn up the music (laughs) 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 they figure that out (laughs) right uh but uh on this one they did request that i that i was at every mix and which i was happy to do because i'm why uh they just wanted me to be there in case they wanted to make any changes at the last minute or i also think it's a I enjoy it, and I've you know I've been doing it for 30 years or whatever. I'd like to be at the mixes, and and uh, I like to participate in that whole process. One interesting thing I noticed when I was living in Los Angeles I was going to the mix on this show at Sony that I was doing. <laughs> I made a comment about the sound effects, <laughs> and uh, you don't do that, man. <laughs> <laughs> Stay in your fucking lane. We don't need you talking about right. sound effects. <laughs> It was funny. Uh, anyway, back to what you were asking. So uh, I would I would show up at these mixes, and that was very helpful and useful because <clears throat> there's a pretty substantial overlap between what's known as sound design and a synth score. My score for for this uh, for this uh, show was all synths. As a result, I wound up sending specific cues to the sound designer, and which was great because he could avoid harmonic clashes he could avoid harmonic clashes and and just get an idea where i was going with the score and he could fill in the spots without actually fighting what i was doing and uh we're mixing in atmos which is sort of the standard delivery now and i know that because i'm in a new i'm in a new studio you know i built a studio in this new house and my place in la i had dialed in and was very very confident about what i did in there would sound great on tv which it did but I, I wasn't so sure about this so i also wanted to go to the mixes to oh, right to get tactile feedback about so what's happening in the bottom end here yep. and i delivered a really bottom end heavy score like really a lot of low end information and i go in and i talk i say so uh so there's a lot of uh, a lot of low hertz in this, in my <laughs> and the mixer goes, "Yeah, and we're going to add more." <laughs> oh wow! And I went, "What?" <laughs> goes, yeah, we're, we're in Atmos man. We got a lot of room down
0: there. <laughs> oh wow, that's cool. Uh, well, that's fascinating, man. I it's so interesting. It's it's a world that you know. I've been in. i I've, I've done my experience with TV and film stuff has always just been you know being asked to do things like for a session as part of it, but I've never been the composer on a, on a show to that extent. So it's a process I don't know anything about. It's really interesting.
1: Yeah. You, but you've written tons of songs and, and you've sure, lots yeah. of music.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I've been involved in the shows, but, but, but I've always had the the buffer of the composer being the guy that's dealing with all this shit and I'm just like doing a guitar part. So it's, yeah. really... <laughs> yeah. and it, it's, um,
1: it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing, you know, because I mean, Sometimes I think that uh, the write- the actual writing of the music is is sort of the easiest part of the job. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, and that's not always the case. But but you wind up you're a storyteller, like everyone else is a storyteller, and you're trying to interpret someone's vision. So there's a lot of you know interpretation and and uh, deciphering and uh, you know trans- translation going on. And I remember. Yeah. Uh, often you're in a situation where you're working with someone and they go, I don't know the musical term for it. I said, no, it's not your job to know the musical
0: term. Right.
1: Don't talk crescendo with me, you know, like uh, (laughs) tell me what you want to feel. And, and let me see if I can make that happen. And and so you just take all that pressure off people that are feeling insecure about music. Yep. And having said that, I, I did a, a show with, with a guy. Uh, It was a sniper show. God, it was really, really fun to do. And the writer was a musician, a jazz musician. And uh, so we're sitting at the, at the mix and we start talking about jazz music and we're like, we have the exact same taste. We know the same guys and blah, blah, blah. And yeah. so when he made a musical comment, you know, so this could be more of this or that. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can definitely do that. You know, so. But that's rare. Yeah, it is. However, there's definitely. a lot of, you know, polymaths mm-hmm. out there, people that do so many different
0: things and do them well. So tell me a bit about your background and like how you got into this racket in the first place. Cause like at some point, you know, things must have shifted for you where you suddenly saw like this film thing as like a, as a career viable career option. But up until that point you were road-dogging it in a blues band. Yeah. So um, tell me a bit about your life at that point. And like, were you, uh, like, what was your life like as a, as a touring musician? Were you happy in that situation or was it fucking crazy or like what was going on?
1: Uh, well, well, I, you know, I, I was a jazz guy in high school and the, for this three months of college that I went, <laughs> and uh, you know, and I got, I got a, uh, <clears throat> was playing in all the, you know, in every sort of available jazz outlet that I could get my hands on, in, in Vancouver, which was oddly there was a lot of them back then. This is in the late seventies, early eighties. And I I, I applied for and received a Canada Council grant to go study in New York for a year. Back then, they gave you like more money than I made the year before to go and, you know, as a musician. And uh, and so I went to New York, but my girlfriend at the time was pregnant, so I brought her with me, and I studied with uh, Dave Liebman and uh, Bob Berg when I was there.
0: So just like deep saxophone training and jazz, you know, and jazz training yeah, uh,
1: and practice my ass off. But I mean, that's sort of the reason I dropped out of college. I I was practicing six hours, eight hours a day or studying, uh, mm. you know, and then I go to college and suddenly I, I, I'm lucky if I get 90 minutes of practicing and I just, go, right. this is not going to
0: work. you know. Yeah. So I, it's I cramping I, my style.
1: Yeah. You know, I can't, I can't do that anyway. So, uh, So, yeah, so we came back from New York to have our son. And, oh, just before I went to New York, I landed the gig with Powder. That's right.
0: Okay, so this is Powder Blues. They were, at the time, like sort of a a blues band, but they had some huge sort of pop crossover pop rock hits on the radio. I'm just telling people for the background that don't know who the powder blues are. They were, it was a big deal in the early eighties. That band. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So were they already at that stage or were they just starting out or what was, where were they at? They'd
1: already, they'd already had like big hits.
0: Yeah.
1: They played at Montreux jazz festival. They were, they were big. And uh, it was 1984 that I joined the band powder started, I think in 79, maybe a little earlier and had, quite a bit of success. Yeah. Bruce, Bruce Allen, I believe was, uh, repping them at one point. Was he really? Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow. So it had, uh, it had really, de- you know, it was a, it was a, a major get for me when I landed that job.
0: W- were you looking for it or did it just come out of the blue?
1: You're always looking for a work when you're a freelancer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It came out of, uh, Bill Clark, the trumpet player had joined the band and, uh, Dave Woodward, the saxophone player, was taking a break, and because okay. the other thing too is I was a jazz guy, but I was also the jazz guy who would play in, at the American with Gordy Walker and Danny Tripper, and like I would do that stuff. And I also had a bit of a long time and very fruitful relationship with a, a guy named Gary Stevens, who originally from Wichita, and he lived up in in uh, in Vancouver, and he kind of did a Ray Charles, James Brown r&b country thing he played a b3 and uh i joined that band that was my first full-time band when i was 18 years old or something and back then when you when when you had a, a house gig it was two or three weeks six or seven nights a week so you get good well yeah and you and you make a lot of you know you there's a lot of time to make mistakes <laughs> right <laughs> And anyhow, so, so I I had done that and all my jazz friends were sort of sneering at me because I'm out there playing R&B, but I'm also uh, paying the rent and, and, and that sort of thing. I always, that was important to me for some reason.
0: <laughs> sure. How busy were they at that time? Were they touring a the lot?
1: Very busy. For example, that first year, my son was born. We did 180 shows. I missed his mm. first steps, his first words. Wow. I, I paid the rent. <laughs> but. Yep. But I missed all the milestones, right? Yeah. But when I was home, I was home, and I was with him, and that was great. And then my wife got pregnant again immediately, and we had a daughter. And I kind of realized that even though I was in this great band, if I was going to have a family, I-, I wanted to participate, and I had to figure out a way. What can I do that that uh, will let me stay at home? I always loved movies and, and TV shows, and soundtracks to them, but I had really done nothing serious.
0: So you managed to kind of juggle the
1: jazz and the R&B stuff? hmm mm-hmm. yeah. I was really active in the jazz thing and wrote a bunch of tunes for that band. And so then as I'm trying to sort out how to make a living, uh, I'd moved into a co-op with my young family. And uh, one of the other co-op people was uh, Danny Antonucci. Oh, Now you see how this is all happening. And at that time, he had two kids about my kid's age and uh, he had vertical hair and wore leather and sneered and smoked and wore Dayton's, you know, and stomped around. (laughs) What
0: what was he doing at that time? Like, what was his gig? Animating. Animating. He was. Oh, he, was. Okay. he was. He was working at International Rocketship. What was International Rocketship?
1: Oh, there was a guy named Marv Newland who did a, a short film. Probably most famous for his short film, uh, Bambi meets Godzilla. I don't. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen okay. it? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that was his. That was one of his big, big. Uh, it was hilarious, man.
0: Oh, my Anyhow, God, yeah.
1: so he he was from, originally from California, I think, and he'd re- relocated up to Vancouver and and sort of collected this renegade you know ragtag band of animators to to make yeah. the short films and also do commercial work Danny was in that group and so Danny said to me we you know we were kind of like I was the long-haired hippie with the war you know was playing jazz saxophone and he was the punk wearing a leather jacket and stomping around and and kind of scaring people just by looking at them. <laughs> but we both had these toddler kids, right? <laughs> you know, <and> so, <laughs> and so one day we wound up, we've gotten kind of friendly, you know, nodding acquaintances and, and I lived downstairs and he lived in the apartment above me. And so we kind of said, well, come on over. And so, either I went to his or he went to mine and I look at his record. We look at our record collection and go, Oh fuck. we like the same shit he's yeah, got yeah. Frank Sinatra. He's got Ornette Coleman. He's got, you know, he's, and then kind you know, George Jones, a bunch of great music. Uh I didn't have quite the same punk collection as he had, but uh, <laughs> you know, but he had, I, we talked the other day about his, his uh, very eclectic and expansive musical taste. And right. so we sat around drinking whiskey, listening to Frank and became, very close friends. And, and he said, so what do you want to do anyhow? And I said, I, I don't know. I mean, if I'm writing, I'd, I'd be into getting into, into, uh, scores. And he says, so let me in, introduce you to uh, Marv. So I went to rocket ship and Marv was a huge jazz fan. Uh, okay. and, uh, so that was handy. He knew who, who I was and we wound up, uh, doing a bunch of projects together.
0: What was the first thing you did with them?
1: Gosh, you know, I, that's a great question. I honestly cannot remember, but a very early thing that I did with them was a, a show called Deadly Deposits for the NFB. Okay. I did the score and all the sound effects because I really loved sound I thought the sound effects and music were, there was no reason to separate the two things.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: I realized that the reason was because no one person could do it
0: all. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, and stay alive. But uh, yeah, so I did the sound effects and... Mixed it. No, I didn't mix it. I did the sound effects and the music.
0: What was that composed of?
1: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global
0: commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Was that like, were you composing for a jazz? uh, I did. Well,
1: this was a, this was a noir kind of thing,
0: right? Okay.
1: So I did, did kind of a Bernard Hermony kind of sounding. And so the animator on it was Jay Faulkner, who I'd mentioned already. And the producer was Dennis Heaton, who is the same guy that I'm doing these Netflix shows with.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. It
1: was one of our first projects together. And we became, we are very close friends and, and we've just hung out over the 30 years, you know, ever possible. When he goes to L.A., he would come and stay with me. And now we're neighbors here on Salt Spring, which is great.
0: Amazing. You mentioned Bernard Herrmann. Had you also gone deep into like into that era of, of film scoring? Yeah, for sure. I mean, okay,
1: I approached film scoring the same way I approached improvising and jazz. I just I uh, I transcribed and then practiced and then learned it, you know, yep. put it through 12 keys orchestration is a little different. You want to keep it in the key that it sounds good in, but but there's different ways of doing it. So that's what I did is I sat down and transcribed film scores. Wow, cool. It's not quite the same as a Coltrane solo, but the principles are the same, you
0: know? Uh-huh. Were there any big standouts for you of, of ones in particular that were so influential just from actually sitting down and figuring out what was going on in them?
1: Well, I mean, one of my favorite composers is Jerry Fielding, and he did... He's famous for his work with Clint Eastwood, but also he did all the Peck and Peckinpah films, okay. M- most of them. And he was just a really, he was a, I didn't know this when I was attracted to his music, but, but he was a jazz guy and uh, he had a Vegas band. He got blacklisted and, was, and wound up, he was a film composer in Hollywood, got blacklisted for Un-American Activities and wound up yeah. running a band in Vegas. And then Otto Preminger brought him back in the 60s to do Advice and Consent and uh sort of like flip the bird to the you know he was sort of the, one of the guys who said this guy is not a communist you know like you know. <laughs> the score to uh straw dogs uh there's an opening sequence where it's kind of a brass corral and then at the end of the brass corral you know we, we get this montage of stuff going on in this little uh english village and then there's these church bells that that happen and uh, the brass chorale and the church bells are actually playing the same thing, and it it was just so stunning. Anyway, wow. at, uh, Jerry Fielding was a huge influence, of course. In those days, Jerry Goldsmith—you know—you can't really hear; it It doesn't get better than that. He know? was
0: everywhere, yeah.
1: And Nino Rota, all right. of the, all of the uh, all of the Italian stuff. You know, he did the Godfather, but he did all the Fellini movies too. And
0: right, yeah, he was—he's a master,
1: and just so whimsical and different and his heart was just like everything was just infused with heart, you know? And, and that's sort of, I think that's really what I try to do
0: is get. Yeah. that That's what, that's what comes through me and the stuff that i hear of of what you do and the stuff wow. that i've been around for sure when you started working with antonucci and all those guys did it escalate to a point where all these guys are coming up with all these crazy animations and you were doing a lot of soundtrack work for them or was it just pretty sporadic in the early days
1: well i mean it was job by job you know we did some converse all-star commercials and we did some work for mtv and on the work of MTV MTV was just happening in those days and yeah. they had just done Beavis and Butthead. And so animation was enjoying this kind of like surge of
0: popularity. Right.
1: And they had this bright idea to take the bad boy of animation, Danny, who had done a show called Lupo the butcher. Did you, have you seen Lupo?
0: Sure. Yeah. Cause I used to see those um, festivals of, a- of short animation. That's what, that was my first experience with him. Spike
1: and Mike's, uh, and that's right. Yeah. So anyhow, we were doing these shorts, uh, MTV got the idea that animation was their new cash cow. So they hired Danny to do a series that was based on uh, MTV birth, happy birthday MTV ID that we did where there's basically this guy is sitting on the toilet, grunting one out. (laughs) The veins are sticking. It's just like, like there were 15, I think 10 or 15 second spots and he's sitting on the toilet and the end of it, you hear this plop and the camera pulls back and there's a turd shaped like MTV and it says, happy <laughs> birthday MTV. And they loved it. <laughs> so They said, make us a show like this. So he, okay. he made a show called The Brothers Grunt. Right. Did you work on that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We I think we did 70 episodes. So we did. Yeah, we did a bunch of episodes of that and... It was really, really out there. There wasn't a lot of, how did we do it? Yeah, that was all. I I recorded, I wrote a bunch of themes and then I recorded a bunch of bed tracks with musicians in different keys and different tempos that I would then use as sort of a basis and I'd edit together sort of the uh, comping and then I would play whatever. I'd play like the guitar or the saxophone or the flute whatever instruments I could get my hands on and I'd play that over top of it for the melody material. So I had this basic library of vamps and, you know, mm-hmm. themes. And then I would, I'd, I'd play live instruments over top of it and edit it all together in Pro Tools, which back then was sound designer.
0: Yeah. Right. Was it, yeah. So this is like early nineties. Is that when that was going on? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the big problem with that is that they had Beavis and Budhead on for an hour. So every night
0: anyway oh my god
1: it was an hour from seven to eight and when they made uh, the brothers grunt rather than just put it on from eight to eight thirty, they took a half hour out of beavis and butthead and put brothers grunt in so then all the beavis and butthead fans were pissed off because they're losing a half right. hour of their show and this was a challenging show <laughs> there was no dialogue there's one character who spoke and the rest really just ran around and grunted oh
0: shit <laughs> It was really, really funny. I've not seen that show. i got to check it out.
1: Oh, it's, it's in the far reaches, the furthest corners of the internet. You can scrape, right. scrape one or two of them up. <laughs> but anyhow, so, uh, so that... So that
0: just lasted for like one season or something? Yes.
1: I can't okay. remember how long it took us to do it. But interestingly, because I was doing that, and I was attending the mixes at Sharp Sound in North Vancouver, yeah. and, I, and I was running my Pro Tools rig on the stage and cutting and doing stuff on the stage, Paul Sharp, the owner of Sharp Sound had just started doing a show called the outer limits, an anthology show. And so I'd see, I saw Paul, you know, every time I was up there mixing and blah, blah, blah. And in fact, that's also the facility that we mixed deadly deposits at. So anyhow, they do the first season of outer limits for MGM. And, and there's lots of fixes on the, on the stage. Uh, because the pictures changed. Remember I talked about that locked picture mm-hmm. that keeps changing. Yeah, yeah. So The composers were all in LA and they're sending their stuff up, but the pictures changed since they've written it. So it has to get fixed on the stage and nobody at Sharp at that time was really uh, familiar with Pro Tools and, and they were wasting a lot of time on the, on the stage with the big second hand ticking away hundreds at a, a second. Yeah. You know, and, and so he suggested he goes, hey, you know, uh, they picked up Outer Limits for season two. We wasted so much time on, on the stage last year. Why don't you talk to this guy and tell him you're, tell him you're available to music edit if you want to do it? And I thought, oh, I don't want to fucking music edit, but sure. And because uh, <laughs> no one else was really doing it at the time up in Vancouver. Wow. And so I contacted the, the post-production supervisor and cut a deal with him. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the best things I ever did because I got to hear these scores from the
0: best writers in LA. Like I Who was is, is composing that score?
1: Oh man, there was a, I mean, uh, well, I mean, John Van Tongren was doing it. Uh, oh, okay. You know, Mark Mancina, Mark Mancina did some, like b- big
0: guys. Heavy, heavy hitters.
1: yeah. A lot, a lot of guys, you know, you know, you know, the names and you go, wow, this is great. And then I would get like eight tracks. I'd get dads with.
0: And that guys. was your gig on that show was to be the sound, the music editor.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I would be, ba- you know, I would, I would basically receive the scores, conform it to the picture if necessary, put in the, you know, the, the the title sequence and the bumpers in and out of commercials and cut the blacks. And sometimes it had to be sewn together. Did a lot of that kind of stuff. <laughs> and then. the the best part of it was also sometimes i'd be in on the spotting sessions so i'd get to watch uh you know a seasoned composer Mm -hmm. sit down with a seasoned producer and discuss the music on a show and so i learned right what are the good questions what are the the questions not to ask you
0: know yeah yeah (laughs) And uh, it was great. So, did you continue doing doing music editing, or was that just like a one off thing that just oh, you did for?
1: I did a bunch of it, and I got I kind of got a reputation for doing it, and I got more jobs, and I got too busy to I couldn't do them all. So I'd say, yeah, okay, I'll do this job, and then I would buy another Pro Tools rig and train someone else
0: to 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 do. That's it. sort of what what Danny was doing for you in at MX, right? Exactly what
1: Danny was doing, but that's how I met Sean. OK, it's because uh, I had a guy uh, doing, you know, doing a show for me and I, I'm. But meanwhile, I'm still I, I'm also I've got a composing career going. Right. So, yeah, I'm doing these animated shows and I'm starting to do documentaries with a company called Paperni. And this is back in the days with Paperni, They didn't use Temp Score. So basically, you got a documentary and you got to invent the sound of the show. And that was really cool. useful for me as a yep. composer. <laughs> I call him up, said, "Hey, I got this thing, and it pays this. And if you're interested, maybe we can talk about it." He came up, you know, Sean. He said, "Bing, yeah, man, I'm here." You know, (laughs) Sean was on a little bit before the edge started. He would have been mid '90s, maybe '97, '98.
0: And uh, yeah, because we made, I was making records with him up until '98 at at maximum the place on the place they had on 12th, and Arbutus.
1: Yeah, which was the old Blue Wave, right? Yeah, yeah, and then it was kind of like I all this stuff was happening. We had like I want to say six or seven American TV series that we were amazing music editing on.
0: So, so that really the snowballed. Then the music editing thing really sort of took on a life of its own.
1: It did, yeah. it, You know, so I'd buy another Pro Tools rig and train someone to run it, and and <laughs> you know, and do that sort of thing and manage everything. And my girlfriend at the time. Her father, he was watching this whole thing happen. And he goes, you know, you're, you're really busy. Have you ever thought of like operating your own facility? You know, because I've got Pro Tools rigs and people's spare bedrooms, you know. And right. Yeah. It's not that sexy, you know. And he goes, what kind of work do you have coming up? And I, so I describe it all to him. He was a banker. And he looked at the whole thing. He says, listen, man, I think there's, I think there's an opportunity for you to, to make some pretty good money here. And I want to I back you. And I said, what? And he says, yeah, let's talk about building a studio. So with his encouragement and with his cash, yeah. uh, I went out and found the warehouse space at 8th and, was it 8th, 7th in Quebec? 7th, I think, yeah. 1,500 square feet. And it was a photography
0: studio before
1: that. So moved in and we spent 150000
0: Building the rooms. I remember going in when it was being built.
1: Yeah, so we spent a fair chunk of change, and I put you know new computers and new everything, and then we had a machine room. It was a great, it's actually pretty sexy little setup. Yeah, it was good. And a place we could bring the clients. Totally. Instead of like someone's basement apartment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then there was my composing suite, the corner office. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then built the surround room for Sean, and that was great. So we. You know, we could do surround mixes, which weren't that prominent, but that was the writing on the wall. I mean, yeah. we knew it was going to be there, so we sort of planned accordingly. And I told you yesterday that, you know, uh, we opened, we cut the ribbon on uh, in August of 2001. And, on you know, uh, literally six weeks later or four weeks later, they, 9-11 attacks happened, and no one was getting on a plane to come to do TV in Canada for that year. So it was like... Everything was going great until then. And it, it all just shut down. Oh man. So, you know, sitting there sucking wind, but I was
0: doing the Eds, and the Eds really financed MX for the most part. We did talk about that yesterday, but just as a brief aside, so the Eds was Ed, Ed and Eddie. That was Antonucci coming back at you saying, I've got this crazy ass project. Yes. And, and I mean, that turned out into a huge thing. It's, and it's still got fans all over the world. Um, just give me a, a quick rundown on, on sort of how that started and how that happened and and just the general uh, aesthetic of it.
1: Yeah, we did we did uh, The Brothers Grunt and then Danny pitched a show or did Cartoon Network, some, somehow, I think Danny created a show, pitched it around, Cartoon Network bought it, and uh, that, that would have been 97, 98 kind of thing. Yeah. It premiered in 99, the first episode, and it takes a year or two to get, this stuff up off the ground yeah. Danny asked me to score it for him and it would be different from the brothers grunt there was money for live players uh he want he does Danny does not like samples or anything like that it's always got to be yeah. live.
0: so uh which is super cool and fun for you
1: it's fantastic as long as the money's yeah. there and, and the money was there right. it, yeah part, that was literally the last show with old school money that I, that I did. Interesting. And it lasted for 10 years, which was nice.
0: (laughs) The idea was like for you to go in and, and you basically scored, there was music under almost every minute of action in that show, right? It was like wall to wall musical.
1: Pretty much. Yeah. There were pauses, but it was from the left top corner to the (laughs) right bottom corner.
0: And amazingly to me, I saw you do this. Like you would write out the score on paper with your own handwriting (laughs) and in Vancouver every two weeks. You would have these sessions and bring in all these heavy cats and play the shit down and yeah. basically like it just was all live and i remember sean was recording it and he would it was it wasn't even multi-tracked it was just recorded to two track i do remember that even right no we did multi-track oh you did okay we did but
1: i mean we were also uh, everything is always in record everything's radio basically that we learned that lesson you lo- you only learn that one once right you know, right when they do the perfect first take and you and you think you're just getting levels you know yeah.
0: <laughs> so you would do these sessions for the ads and essentially the band would just run the sh- entire show down right like yeah. you and and you were tracking live yeah everyone's a heavy reader yeah uh they're funny they're crazy what was the direction that you were given like what what were the hallmarks for you to compose to with that show
1: well you know the old uh, Louis Prima's band bus and, and uh, Duke Ellington's band bus (laughs) have a head on collision in the desert one night, but the Ed's band is survivors, you know, but uh, if it, if it could be that, that's what I was hoping for. And uh, yeah, it had to, it had to be funny, but it had to drive. And I had, that's another show where there's themes for characters. And then sometimes a situation would come up. Uh, For example, when you played this slide, you know, when you played the slide guitar, but, but for the most part, it was all that same trumpet, trombone, tenor, piano, and drums. Right. Yeah. Danny didn't like anything that sounded slick. He wanted to see
0: that had to be rough around the edges. Uh, And how long would it take you to do one show handwritten composed, written, and up to the point where the band sits down with it? What, what's I, I also remember you like scribbling out like last minute, Oh yeah, changes and new parts, like right, right until oh, yeah. they. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I saw some of those sessions, and, <laughs> yeah. and and you you were writing right up till the last second. Oh, and
1: and well past it. <laughs> 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 yeah, the old saying that the ink's not dry is is it's quite a thing. And uh, well, to answer the question, the beginning of course, when you're trying to figure out how it's going to work. Yeah. And everyone's trying to figure it out. I am Sean. Was the engineer on all that stuff for the most part? Yeah. Shelly became the engineer when Shelly, oh, yeah. you know, you know, it took every bit of those two weeks to get it done, you know, uh, from the spotting to the writing to the,
0: Were you doing demos and like temping it out and playing it to Antonucci before you got in with the band?
1: Uh, for the theme. Yes. I mean, I'm talking about the show theme, but that was kind of like one demo. If I recall, it's like, he said, I want it a little bit. He goes, you know, a uh, big noise from Winnetka, And I go, yeah. And he said, I want something like that. So I did a thing and, and he whistled it and we, and we were off to the races, you know, he amazing. Yeah. That was, yeah. A, a, I remember that was, uh, Jerry Adolf playing drums on that. Like this the craziest two handed shuffle you could ever imagine. God, he's, he's the man. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, with all this stuff, you get better at it, you develop systems. Yep. And, uh, I think I mentioned, you know, by the end of it, we got that stuff done in a week. You know, but it, it was a vertical week. I mean, it was, it, you, did, you didn't do much sleeping.
0: I loved it. And definitely like nothing's ever been like that since and probably never will, right? Like that, that just doesn't really exist. I mean, I, I guess it could happen again, but that's sort of like a perfect storm of, yeah, well, of was... the industry at the time was able to handle that. And that kind of animation is like so crazy and, and old school in a way.
1: Yes, absolutely. And speaking of old, I think it was the last hand-painted animated show ever. It and... Amazing. And, uh, and The Simpsons. And that was one of the things that sort of made things crunchy was that, you know, they would... They do, you know, they do the animation in Korea and then send it over. And then Fixes had to go back to Korea and send them. And it was like, wow. and, you know, meanwhile, here's your delivery. And the, it just gets crunched and crunched and crunched. And then like, you're fitting the scoring in. And, yeah. like, and to be fair, the sound effects guys had to do it too. And that's really hard. And the sound effects were a big part of that show too. But by the end, we were doing, like I said, I could get that show written and like basically what if if i'm remembering correctly i basically wrote into the sequencer with piano bass and just a a, a drum sound like a hi hat and then i'd go through the whole show uh get it the way i wanted it and then uh and then go back and t- and take out the manuscript and 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 then orchestrate it so awesome. it'd take a couple days to get it written vertical days and a couple days to orchestrate it and then we'd go into the studio and record it in a day yeah. uh sean would edit it together yeah and do whatever fixes were required and then i would d- deliver it as a two track to the yeah. stage, not stems
0: amazing yeah so that show that show lasted for a good 10 years yeah it was on That's the air amazing. for 10
1: years we had uh yeah. it was longer than that actually but we we worked on it for 10 years amazing at, at first <laughs> you get these calendars and <clears throat> with the schedule and then there's a little there's a little uh, field on the calendar that says, you know, how many days over or under schedule you are. And I remember seeing the last time they actually put that, feature on the calendar. It was 495 days over. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We don't need that field on the calendar anymore. Just ignore that.
0: (laughs) No doubt. Oh my God. Just one last thing that maybe you could talk about a little bit is like the transition for you from when you decided to shut down MX, your place that was obviously going pretty bananas in Vancouver. And what was that process like for you deciding like, I'm going to make this move? Were you at a certain point in your success where you felt like it was essential or did you just want to change or what was going on with you then?
1: Uh, yeah, that would have been in, uh, 2005, I moved to Los Angeles.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: and so we would start going down there quite a bit and I was focusing my attention on it because I, I just thought, it's the center of the universe for what it is that we're doing. Sure. I want to know what's going on. Like uh, Sean and I went to this state of state of the music invention at the SCL, the society of composers and lyricists. I think it was 2000 or 2001 or something like that. And so there was sort of this thing about a facility going on and, and going down and, and sort of connecting with the scene in LA and I just love Los Angeles. I just love it. I love it. Everything about it. You know, I love the city and the scene and the weather and the people. It's fantastic. And uh, so in 2005, my daughter went to, my son had already moved out of the house and uh, my daughter uh, was, had just graduated high school and was going to university in Montreal. She went to Concordia to study English. Don't know why, but that's where she went. So she went in September and I went, fuck it. I'm out of here. Wow. And Rented at that time I was doing the Eds still and the Dead Zone with uh Sean was doing that with me. And uh and while were we doing Wildfire? Was we had just gotten Wildfire season two because the original composer Jay Greska wanted a pay bump and they weren't gonna give it to him. So you know, (laughs) you know, the mercenaries
0: come in. Right. Did you have to like wrangle your way out of your situation in Vancouver? I don't remember how that went. I left it running. I left it with Sean, oh, okay.
1: you know, and Sean, okay. and, and by this time, Natasha Dupre had, we'd hired Natasha and sort of said, you know, we need to get into music supervision. And so she came across, she, I think she was working at Network or something like that before. Yeah. And we just basically said, there's this opportunity are you in? And she said, yeah, fuck, I'm in. And so Mm -hmm. she was great, still is great. I work with her on most of the shows that I do still to this day. Cool. And uh, yeah, so I went down there, left MX running, and that was hard and didn't really work out. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, the pesky economic downturn happened. That's really what happened.
0: Did you still have the place? Like up until? Yes. when When did the place vaporize? I think
1: I sold it in 2009, 2008. Or oh, nine. wow. That long. Yeah.
0: Okay. I, I got
1: killed.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, because uh, I'd spent a lot of money building it and I sold it. Yep. And uh, it's funny because I, I did a Hallmark movie uh, that was mixing there and I went in and saw my old studio. It was great. They tarted wow. it up. It was, it was looking really good and it sounded great. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay. This is nice. Yes. Wow. Cool. Uh, but yeah, so that was sort of the transition and I tried to keep MX going. And then eventually I, I couldn't as a company, there just wasn't the work to support it. So, uh, you know, Natasha, you know, Natasha and I agreed that she should move on to greener pastures. And, and so she, I think that's when she went to work for Feldman. And then I rented the suites out on a kind of like prorated, but it did, it did not, it didn't work out well. It was just, it was hard. Yeah. and I was busy in l a and I couldn't put the time in to to sort of you know when the cat's away the mice will totally play and i it's, yeah. I don't think anyone you know played or anything it's just you you, you need a guiding force and yeah. I, I guess I was that you know me me and sean were that and and then when neither one of us was there it just kind of like floundered
0: well it's been a it's been a journey and now you're in salt spring on salt spring for foreseeable future. Yeah. And like, are you still getting stuff coming in on a regular basis where you feel like it's, you can sort of kick back now or is it still, are you still like scrambling for work where you have to, or like, well, you know, you're
1: the life of a freelance
0: guy. Tell me about it.
1: You know exactly what it's like. I don't want to, I don't want to stop working. I love working. I love what I do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, you know, Danny actually has a show that he's developing now. And so oh yeah
0: i actually did a bunch, back to square one
1: yeah i did a bunch of <laughs> uh, i did a bunch of uh demos for him wow uh it's it's hilarious and typically and so yeah danny feels like it would be nice to do one more one more show so it'd be great if that happened we'll see what happens with the imperfects i love working with dennis too and and uh i really like what we've come up with you know for a sound on the show it's for me, it's really fun because, of, like I say, a lot of my stuff is sort of that MIDI orchestra thing, and this was all synth and really fun to sort of play with that palette.
0: Yeah. I love what I do. I'm lucky to be doing it. Clearly. Well, um, thanks, man. I really appreciate you telling me some of the ins and It was a nice the visit. Ins and outs. We got to do it with a cocktail next time. <laughs> I know. It's been too long. Love you, man. <laughs> all right, man. Talk love to you, you, too. It. Bye. See ya. Oh, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with Patrick Caird. I hope you enjoyed it. I will be back in a couple weeks for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Henhouse Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.